Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I look very much forward to being your president. And hopefully at the end of two years or three years or four years, or maybe even eight years, you will say, so many of you worked so hard for us, but you will say that, you will say that that was something that you were really were very proud to do. And, and I can... Thank you very much. And I can only say that while the campaign is over, our work on this movement is now really just beginning. It was a presidential race to remember, and many of us couldn't wait for it to be over. Now that we have a president-elect, are you happy with the outcome or still in knots over the result? Today, we look at the rise of Republican Donald Trump. He was seen as a long shot in the eyes of many, the political establishment, the media, maybe even in the eyes of some listening right now. We want to hear from you today. Where does our country go from here? I heard someone use the phrase blue bubble to describe our presence in Connecticut, cut off from many parts of the country that wholeheartedly supported Donald Trump. Of course, President-elect Trump has his supporters here, too. But why was his win such a shock? U.S. Senator Chris Murphy was one of many politicians who pledged to give Mr. Trump a chance. But Senator Murphy also made this point the other day. He said on Tuesday night, quote, everything changed and nothing changed. We have a new president, one that half the country didn't want. But let's be honest, had Hillary won, we would still have a president that half of America didn't want. So it's still the same complicated, imperfect nation that it was before. How do you feel about that statement? Is it spot on? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back into our studio Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hillier College at the University of Hartford. So good to see you again. Good morning to you. First off, I know you're a political scientist. Have you gotten any sleep yet? <laughs> Not that first night. I think I went to bed about 4 o'clock, so, and then I had to get up early in the morning, so it was a long day yesterday. It's still all very uh, new, just two days after the election, um, after you've been taking in all of the voting data and analysis mm-hmm. that has been out there. You know, were you surprised by right. Donald Trump's victory? I, I actually think that even the Donald Trump folks were surprised by his victory. I think, you know, if you listen to the conversation that night, there was, you know, talk within the sort of war room for Trump that they were expecting to give a concession speech. And as the states rode in, they were in shock uh, about it. And then they felt the momentum and got really excited. You know, up until Tuesday night, uh, many believed in the Beltway, especially in blue states like here in Connecticut, that Hillary Clinton you had a strong chance of becoming right. the next president. What happened? Right. I think the way you shape, the way you sort of frame this uh, conversation, I think, is a way of thinking about what went on that night. 
in America right now, it, we're deeply divided, and this election really represents that. I think on the one hand, there's this one vision of America that really is multiracial, multiethnic, very diverse, that has this set of challenges in front of it, and people are thinking about how do we move forward and work on these things together. I think there's a second vision of America that is uh, not that vision. It's a vision in which people are very worried, concerned about that diversity, concerned about what direction the country goes in and how it evolves and develops. It's a vision of America that uh, comes out of the 1950s. It's white, that's male, that's patriarchal. And I think this election really depicted that real tension that's here in the U.S. around those issues. And a lot of people believe the polls, the polls that were saying that Hillary Clinton was going to win. The margin, I think, uh, lessened as we got closer to Tuesday night. But, I mean, I think that was how – did it, how did the polls get yeah. it so wrong? I mean, they got it so wrong <laughs> that they probably should be out of a job, a lot of people. I think what was interesting, there was always this outlier in Los Angeles and the L.A. Times uh, predicted a Trump win and people sort of dismissed them. I think certainly part of the difficulty with polling today is that many people have moved away from landlines. They rely on cell phones uh, in which you can actually say no to a call that you don't recognize. I think trying to predict what the actual population will look like who will turn out to vote has gotten a lot more trickier with the sort of shrinkage of the white population and the growth of the non-white population and really sort of predicting who will turn out and who won't turn out will affect your ability to really put together representative polls. And so I think polling right now took a has a black eye following this election. So that's just it. The opinion polls underestimated the amount of right. support for Donald Trump. Right. And I think, you know, clearly what this, you know, seems to suggest is that the enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton was not as strong as the enthusiasm for Donald Trump. I think a lot of the uh, polls have shown that, particularly in rural areas and suburban areas, the turnout in some states exceeded what it had, uh, had been four years ago. And so certainly the enthusiasm on the Trump side intensified as the election got closer. I think a lot of people in those last 10 or 11 days following the Comey release of the investigation of her around the emails and also uh, even when he backed away from that and said they didn't find anything. I mean, it just was a bad, the WikiLeaks stuff. It was just a bad 10 or 11 days. And I think a lot of independents who might have been on the fence, unsure who to vote for, decided at that last minute to pull a lever for Trump. You know, there's been a lot of attention on um, what Donald Trump's rise in the Republican Party is doing to the GOP. But when we look internally at what's happening within the Democratic Party, the fact that um, a lot of people who supported Bernie Sanders were unhappy with how the Democratic Party treated him, did they get it wrong? Was she the wrong candidate to run? I think in many ways people are now having that conversation about whether, say, a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren would have been a better candidate I think right now, though, and, and, you know, in my mind at least, I think, you know, something is in the water right now, and the Republican Party is being infected by, the country's been infected by, and that whatever that is is in the water, I think, just really moved the country in that direction um, for this election. And I'm not sure even a Sanders or a Warren uh, camp candidacy would have been any better with this kind of an outcome. Because people were looking for that change agent, and Donald Trump was that man? Right. And certainly Donald Trump. And when you look at the exit polls, you know, those who favored some sort of a change in Washington strongly favored Donald Trump. And so um, as opposed to Hillary Clinton, and clearly that was a major sort of motive for what went on was to see someone different in the White House and to blow up the system. I mean, Michael Moore has described Donald Trump as the Molotov cocktail of the white working class. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm talking to Bilal Siku, who's with the University of Hartford, a political scientist. We want to hear from you today. We want to take your calls, your comments, your questions. Uh, we asked uh, people on Twitter before the show what a Trump presidency means to them. Here's what a few have said. Uh, Kevin writes, it means my faith that people in this country are basically decent people was erroneous. Another, Jessica writes, I hope it means he's going to encourage job growth and economic growth and a do-over on health insurance. Another, Jessica writes, my friends feel physically threatened. I feel impotent. What will I do? What, but will but will do all I can to fight this. And then Ivana writes, I voted. I will never accept Trump as my president. Hashtag never Trump. He does not deserve one second of my respect. So uh, there, just in those few tweets, we see again how divided we are on the outcome. Right, absolutely. And right now you see all across the country people are out in the streets protesting and rejecting this election outcome. I think in many ways, when you look at this election this year, things happen here that I just haven't seen in my lifetime. I've been following elections more closely since 1984, which was the first election I voted in. And I've never seen anything like it where you have a major party candidate who launches a campaign by attacking uh, Mexican-Americans, calling them rapists, calling them murderers, who talks about using stop and frisk to sort of intensify police sort of surveillance of black people in black communities, who says the things that he said about women and other kinds of things. And what this election really has meant to a lot of people is a very scary moment. They see what has happened with the decision that was made, and people are really afraid. Let's hear from some of them. John's calling from Glastonbury. John, you're on Where We Live. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. I'm actually an independent. I, I wouldn't say that I supported Trump, but I'm actually very pleased with the outcome. And I think that um, one of my biggest frustrations is the media and uh, you folks. And, and I, although I listen to your show a lot, I've been a contributing mes- uh, listener for many years. I've been very, very upset over the last couple of years in talking about politics. And I don't feel that NPR, uh, CNN, and so many other other networks really speak to uh, the other half of the country. And so I think that this was a repudiation of that. I mean, the media pulled out all the stops to uh, try to stop a Trump election. And despite all of that, he still came out on top. I hear your comment, John, and, and this, uh, I think many of us would uh, admit this is a wake-up call, that there are many people in this country with many different perspectives. Um, but I wanted to you know, ask you, you know, where do we go from here as a well, country? As a country, well, you know, um, quite frankly, I, I, you know, with a with a Trump presidency, I, I would have probably liked to have seen you know, some checks and balances. You know, having the the House and, and the Senate, you know, maybe uh, switch hands because I think we do better when we have those checks and balances. But it'll be interesting to see. At least something's going to happen, uh, as opposed to nothing happening. And um, you know, a lot of the the uh, policies I, I tend to agree with with with. Uh, the Republicans, so I'm actually encouraged by that. But uh, I think the media has a has a huge opportunity, um, you know, within the staffs of staff of NPR to bring in some conservatives and 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 you know get the other half of the conversation. And I was very encouraged by the discussion yesterday. I don't know if it was uh, Colin McNamara that was talking about, you know, uh, there was a gentleman on, you know, talking about, you know, there there is this. The other half of the conversation, and we, we tend to gravitate to our own echo chambers and only listen to people that support our ideology. And I think that's uh, I think that it is a wake up call. We need to we need to reach out and really understand uh, the other side. Well, thank you, John, for your call. I appreciate it. Thank you.
I want to take another call. Uh, Jocelyn's been holding. Jocelyn, you're on the show. Hi. So, Jocelyn, I understand our producer is telling us that you are a student at the at Quinnipiac University. This was your first time voting. Uh, can I ask who you voted for? I voted for Trump. And tell us uh, why um, he was your candidate. He wasn't my first choice. Um, back during the primaries, I voted for Rubio. Um, I was really on the fence. Honestly, I didn't know who I was going to vote for until I sat down and just looked at the ballot. What really changed it for me was going to the RNC in Cleveland and just listening to other people in the Republican Party speak to me. You know, I'm a Republican, so hearing them say we just need to unite behind him kind of got me looking more into him, thinking about his views more on things, not just his social views, which that's all we care about in the media, but also his economic views and things like that. And Jocelyn, can I ask uh, where you're from? I'm from Stratford, Connecticut. Okay, so you are from Connecticut. You know, earlier in the show I mentioned, you know, many of us see ourselves in a bubble and uh, maybe cut off from the rest of the country, from uh, parts of the country that that see Donald Trump as as the right person to have won in this election. Do you feel that way as well? I do. Coming from Quinnipiac, this is a very liberal university. You know, most people here were Hillary supporters. Um, But... You know, in my hometown in Stratford, I kind of felt that there was a good amount of support for Trump still. All right. Well, I appreciate you giving us a, a call. And, and you know, um, you are a, a female, so I'm curious, you know, there was a lot of attention on things that Donald Trump has said against women. So how did you reconcile that in your vote? Um, I kind of just tried to push past anything having to do with social views. I don't think Hillary Clinton is as much of a female supporter as she preaches to be by any means. So I kind of just had to think what was important to me at this point. I don't think anything having to do with female rights is going to be changed from this election. Um, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to go back on any decisions they've already made. So I kind of just had to look past that. Well, one uh, one uh, issue that Donald Trump has brought up in his campaign was the importance of paid leave. I think that's something that a lot of women and men that have children that have um, uh, that are caregivers for their elderly parents and others. That's something that I think a lot of people are seeing. I want to see if that actually that that's something that he supports. Yeah, I think that's I think that paid leave is a really good idea. Um. All right, yeah, Jack. I can't think of anyone who's against paid leave. <laughs> well, I brought that up because a, a lot of times people aren't thinking about some of the things that he has said regarding yeah. women other than the, the derogatory things he said. Mm-hmm. So I do appreciate your call, Jocelyn. Thanks for, thanks for calling in. You're welcome. We also got a tweet uh, from Molly. Uh, Today requires everyone who was unhappy with the result to put their money where their mouth is and support organizations that could be in danger. We have a lot of listeners on the line right now. Uh, We want to ask you to to remain holding. We need to take a break. Again, I'm here with political scientist Malal Siku. We want to find out what a Trump presidency means to you today. That number, 860-275-7266. We'll be back with you in just a moment. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's been a year and a half since the presidential campaign began, and we now know who will be our next commander-in-chief. Today, President Barack Obama will greet President-elect Donald Trump at the White House. It's the first of many moments that signify a change is coming. 
when we know at least half of Tuesday voters are still reeling from that outcome. In studio with me is Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hillier College at the University of Hartford. We're taking your calls and comments today, the number 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, before we take more calls, uh, Bilal, again, you teach at the University of Hartford. Right. What were some of the observations from college students? We heard from one right. who voted for Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Uh, what were some of the things that you heard yesterday right. in class? You know, yesterday was a very powerful day for me, and I think a very powerful day for many others who teach um, in, in higher education. You know, one of the things I was struck by was just how deeply affected students were by this election. And I think the previous caller was right that, you know, the students tended on my campus as well to lean in the more liberal direction, and, and students were really devastated. I mean, I spent the day trying to sort of sum up the election with faculty members, with staff members, and also with students. And I gave a lot of hugs out to people, and a lot of people were doing a lot of crying about this election. In fact, uh, I had a very sort of passionate discussion and an emotional discussion in my campaign elections and voting behavior class uh, last night where students were openly weeping about the election, particularly some of the students of color expressed fear about America right now. They said they woke up this morning really afraid. I had one student who said she went to bed crying. She woke up with a nightmare and woke up crying. And so especially for a lot of students of color who heard this campaign, who heard what uh, Donald Trump said, they are quite fearful of what this election may mean. They're fearful about the possibility of increased um, police brutality. They're concerned about, you know, some of the microaggressions that they constantly experience, you know, on a daily basis, intensifying in our society. And so people are really afraid. So let's let's flesh that out a little bit more. Because of the things that Donald Trump said during uh, the campaign, right. they feel like people who are supporting Donald Trump believe in those very right. hurtful things as well? Exactly. In fact, you know, one student said it exactly that way. She said, I don't fear Donald Trump as much as I fear the followers of Donald Trump. And so that was a powerful sort of moment right there in the classroom. You know, one student talked about how, you know, given Trump's sort of uh, talk about law and order and the sort of use of uh, stop and frisk and wanting in his first 100 days to put more money into law enforcement, more money there. This student talking, this is a 19-year-old, talked about the times he's been harassed by the police and his fear that now this will intensify. He talked about his father having been beaten by the police. He's from Southern California. And so, again, this is a very powerful moment. He was having this conversation, and I noticed a couple of Latinas in the class who actually started to cry. And um, for me, it was a stressful moment because I was trying to figure out when to break off the conversation and how to sort of you know say something to them that would be hopeful that they wouldn't um, take this in the way in which they were taking it. Did you think you succeeded? At the very end, I, I really talked to them. And what I told them, I said, you know, as I talked earlier in the show about this vision of America, I mentioned that to them. And one of the things I told them, I said, look, you guys are the most diverse generation in American history. You're the largest generation. You're bigger than the baby boomers, who I tend to believe are at the source of these problems we face as a country. And I said, look, you guys have the opportunity to shape America and to give the direction. And it's your vision of America, the kind of country you want to live in, that you have to work towards creating. And I think the students took that message and they received it well. I wanted to take some phone calls now. Steve's been holding from Cromwell. Steve, you're on the show. Well, thanks, Lucy and and Professor. I appreciate the opportunity. My comment was that I I think people have lost sight of the fact that that um, that Hillary won the by a plurality, the popular vote by over 200,000. It's close. But she got more votes than Mr. Trump. And 
I think, and I know Paul Ryan said that now this is a mandate, that Mr. Trump has a mandate, and I don't see that. I don't see where he has any kind of a mandate. He just happened to win states by close margins that put him over the electoral college edge. But from a popular standpoint, he didn't win. So I, I don't see a mandate, number one. Number two, my big concern as an optometrist practicing in a city, in New Britain, taking care of those who are less fortunate, I'm very concerned about what's going to happen to health care access for these people. We've made big investments in our practice, equipment, uh, manpower to serve. Uh, with, with the increase in uh, uh, access to care, we're serving more people. And I'm very concerned about what's going to happen on that. And if he follows through, which I guess he will, because the Republican, Republican Congress has the uh, will to dismantle uh, the Affordable Care Act. So uh, I've got major concerns about um, the direction of our country uh, with, with Mr. Trump at the helm. Well, thank you, Steve. You made a couple of good points. Uh, I wanted to just let our listeners know. So next week, we're, Where We Live is going to spend some time looking at some of these policies. Um, we, we've heard uh, that people came out to the polls because they were they were tired of immigration policy um, in this country, uh, not something they believe in with the way the country has been going. Also, uh, what's going to happen with uh, the Affordable Care Act? Um, you know, people have mentioned the economy. Okay, let's talk about some of the things that uh, Donald Trump again has said during his campaign and um, so many unanswered questions. But we do thank you for your comments, Stephen. Let's talk about the popular vote. Bilal? Yeah. You know, when I saw the outcome of this election and I saw that the uh, the Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote and that uh, Donald Trump would win the Electoral College, dread jumped into my heart because whenever I talk to my students about the importance of voting, one of the things they constantly say to me, my vote doesn't matter because the Electoral College decides everything anyway. And so when I saw the outcome in that election, I thought to myself, okay, how do I have this conversation with my students? Because basically what they've said to me about their worries about how a majority of the population can favor one candidate and then that candidate still lose because of our electoral college system is something that many of them don't like. And I think, you know, certainly that's an issue that I think will come to the forefront more. I know there's a movement, the National Popular Vote Movement, that is occurring around the country where in some states they've already agreed in a compact that they would, in fact, go with the majority population if it turns out that the majority vote in the nation is one way, even though within their state the vote is a different way. And so it'll be interesting to see if this picks up momentum in our country now. So when you um, take that question from students of why we need an electoral college, what do you tell them? Well, you know, part of it, I, I try to frame it in the idea that this really was about the larger context around slavery and around other sort of issues about small states and large states. And so I give a kind of technocratic explanation of why the electoral college exists you know, my own general sympathies is against the Electoral College, but uh, but even then, I, I also have a problem with the idea of even tiny states having the same two senators that large states like California have. So that's a whole different issue. Maybe another show. I think so. <laughs> I wanted to hear from one of your students who's on the line. Uh, Jessica is on the line, and I, I understand you're a student at the University of Hartford, Jessica. Hi. Yes, I am. I'm currently a junior at the University of Hartford studying political science. And this was your first time voting as well? Yes, this was. Can you tell us who you supported? I supported Hillary Clinton. And so our question that we're having asking our listeners today is what does the Trump presidency mean to you? The Trump presidency means to me a lot of things. As an African-American female, 
I face a lot of challenges, one, for being female, period, and then two, for being black on top of that. I feel for a lot of the people who are currently trying to process what's going on because we really are in a period of uncertainty about our civil liberties and rights. Um, A Trump presidency, just the way that the election panned out, it just shows me where we're at with my generation in particular, because a lot of the votes were write-ins, and I felt like those votes were wasted. And third-party votes going to Gary Johnson, after seeing the way that those third-party votes would have changed the direction of this election, I really feel like we need to, as a generation, come together and figure out how we're going to learn more about our civics when the government isn't pushing that in the classrooms. Um, We need to understand that these things are important, just as Professor Seku was talking about, a lot of people feel like their votes don't matter. We clearly saw how much they really, truly matter. And I'm just very fearful of what's going to happen in the future especially after reading Trump's 100-day plan, I'm shaking right now on the phone just thinking about this. Well, thank you, Jessica, for uh, your comment. Um, Bilal, how do you respond when people, they they want to criticize people for, um, you know, casting their vote for a third-party candidate, but they have a right to to run as well. At the end of the day, you know, if you are someone who is disappointed by this election, um, I don't think that the criticism is... Can be you necessarily has to be pointed at the folks who voted for third party candidates or voted for um, you know wrote in someone's name. At the end of the day, um, a sizable chunk of the nation's population voted for a candidate who, uh, particularly for many people of color, for example, and I'm one of those people who really sees this uh, person as someone who uh, is quite hateful, who has said things that are racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, and so from that standpoint. Um, you know, I find it really difficult to sort of understand, you know, how people could have voted for a candidate who led with those kinds of issues as opposed to talking about the policies that he would sort of move forward and, and really transform the country in that sense. I wanted to take a call now. Uh, Alex been holding from Hartford. Alex, you're on the show. Alex, are you there? Oh, he's not there. So let's um, let's try another uh, phone call. Uh, John's been calling. I'm um, holding from Bridgeport. John, you're on the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Um, as I said to the screener, I've just been really – I just can't believe that we're still having the wrong conversation. And um, I was very active watching the, uh, the campaign and the election night. And uh, just to, to tell you up front, I am a lifelong Democrat, uh, support – Barack Obama both times, and couldn't have been more thrilled with him getting elected and so forth. But I voted for Donald Trump because I simply could not support such a flat candidate as Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's uh, skeletons in the closet and bringing that to the forefront again um, in the um, in the White House. Just it just can't happen. I mean, and I think that you. The talking heads and academia and people continue to talk about the people that voted for Donald Trump as if they are racist and horrible people, and they just cannot take it that they supported a person like Hillary Clinton and put her at the forefront. And after what she did to Bernie Sanders, it it was, I mean, unconscionable that we're going to continue to talk about 
uh, Donald Trump is this bad guy, and uh, the option that the Democratic Party put up there with the superdelegates and the backroom deals, Donna Brazil and um, uh, Debbie Wasserman Smith, what they did to Bernie Sanders, and they have a, uh, will stand there with a straight face and say that it's us, the electorate that went out there and openly voted against what they did, and they're going to blame us continually and say that, that you know, we're the problem? You've got to look in the mirror and realize what happened here and stop talking around the issue. Well, John, we, John, we did. absolute uh-huh. candidate, please. Well, John, we did earlier in the show bring that up. Was she the right candidate for the Democratic Party? You and many others who have supported Democratic candidates in the past say no. We did bring that up. But I want to ask you, um, you mentioned a point that I wanted to bring up, that you said that um, a lot of people look at those who voted for Trump as the problem and that you're all racist. Um, How do you respond when people say that to you? Well, that's the scary part. I can't even say it. I'm I'm anonymous on the radio, but I I can't put a yard sign in. I can't uh, openly say in Connecticut that I'm for Trump because, but but when when I look at logic, and I work in the uh, electronics industry, so I'm I'm guided by physics. I have to, you know, if you have this many amps, you use this wire. If you have this, you have to use this capacitor. It's it's logic, and when you see a criminal dynasty being put out as this. Um, somehow characterization of positive, it is terrifying that that almost happened. And I get it. It's Donald Trump. Oh, my God. I can't, you can't even say it. But at least the guy uh, is not tangled up with Saudi Arabia and some cabal behind the, behind the scenes of money here and favors there. And the strangeness of the Democratic Party, which with, what they did with all the sneaky stuff that they were taking taking out on Bernie Sanders. Again, they, you know, think about what Bernie Sanders went through. That guy's a stand-up guy, like him or not. He's been in there fighting for these things. Yeah. I mean, you, well, you, John, can I? Sanders, you mentioned Bernie you know, Sanders. Bernie, himself. John, Bernie yeah. Sanders put out a statement yesterday saying that just yeah. like many other politicians that are still in Congress, that they're willing to work with Donald Trump. But he also says he's not going to put up with any more xenophobic, racist speech. And that is something that Donald Trump has done and has said. And people want to hear an apology. They want to they want to understand if this country can really move forward. Do you think Donald Trump needs to apologize for the things that he has said? I think if you're trying to get a guy like that to apologize, it's a it's a false. Uh, he, he's a damaged individual. I mean, you've got to realize that. But he's the tool for the job. Just like when you use a jackhammer, it's loud. It's uncomfortable. But he, he's never held even a dog catcher's position. And that's what we needed. He has no allegiance to any lobbyists. He has no favors to pay back. And you've got to realize that I'm not thrilled about this. But I needed to pull the, uh, if I was on an airplane, like the ejector seat. It's the last chance you have before the plane hits the ground. You don't want to eject from the plane, but you literally cannot logically move forward with with what has happened in the politics of this nation. Well, John, we... The the way that money controls these people is staggering. And you know who isn't controlled by money? 
Bernie Sanders. He's from Vermont. He's not a rich guy. We love Vermont, and, uh, John. They, and we didn't and we didn't put him forward. And a big yeah. part of that was the superdelegates. I know he didn't win the number even with the superdelegates, but time after time, I watched the media say, oh, he's behind, he's behind. And I'm like, he was winning. Yeah. Big crowd. He won Michigan. Well, John, we need to take it. John, we need to take more calls. I'm sorry. Okay. One last point. What? Real quick. Real he, quick. When, when he was going in California, the night before the California primary, the mainstream media announced Hillary Clinton went over the top, and it was over. You remember that happened? We remember. They did not. They did not allow the California, which was the most amount of votes, uh, come into play in the Democratic primary. All right, John. We're going to have our political scientist in the studio respond. Again, a lot of anger with how the Democratic Party right. uh, handled uh, this right. campaign season. But in many ways, you know, John's uh, reaction to Hillary Clinton, reaction to the sort of criticism of Donald Trump and the criticism of some of Donald Trump's voters, I think, is really the crux of the matter with regard to how people perceive this election and this election outcome and the way in which some folks are jubilant about what happened and others are really afraid. I think if you listen to this candidate and you listen to what this candidate said and did, I mean, he walks and talks like a duck. And to say that, you know, xenophobic, racist, uh, sexist stuff came out of his mouth is, you know, not making something up. Now, the question becomes, as a rational voter who goes into the polling place, who do you vote for? Who do you decide that you think represents the best model for leadership for our country. And a sizable portion of the population decided to look away from those kinds of comments and really ignore them and decide to vote for him, even though he said those kinds of things and he's proposed policies that are detrimental to the interests and the needs of so many people in the country who are not white. Um, And, you know, to see them react the way they react uh, makes sense that people of color are indeed afraid right now and really scared about what this can't this presidency may mean. Just very quickly, I had a colleague who teaches in the Hartford Public School System who's an adjunct who came by my office and talked about a, a fourth grader who said that her father said that she told her father, excuse me, that her father said to her that he's worried that they may be kicked out of the country. And this is what she comes back into the classroom and talks about her fear of being tossed out of the country. That atmosphere has been created by this candidacy, and you can't deny that. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We want to get your response uh, to the election outcome, whether you supported Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Uh, He is now our president. We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. We have many people on hold. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow. 75 years ago, Americans put their lives on hold, leaving their homes, risking their lives to fight a brutal war. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with a Connecticut man who's dedicated his parts of his life to interviewing World War II veterans, so their stories remain with us. Also, we'll hear about historian and author Craig Nelson's latest book, Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness. That's tomorrow. Today, we're talking about the presidential election. 
And we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. A lot of tweets and Facebook messages coming to where we live. I wanted to read a few. Uh, Michelle tweets, third-party votes were a reflection of voter values and voices. The RNC, the DNC failed to provide viable candidates, in her opinion. Uh, tweet from Stewie, I'm white, so disgust is my primary feeling. Were I a person of color, my primary feeling would be fear. And Jonna writes, it means the enduring the Jewish dilemma of, quote, at what point do we, have, do we know we have to leave? It goes from theoretical to real. I wanted to take your calls now. Stephanie's been holding from stores. Stephanie, you're on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So tell us what you're thinking today. I just wanted to respond to a couple of things that have been said. Um, there was a comment made by the last caller about, um, you know, how, how he was unhappy having to vote for Trump, how that wasn't his first choice. And, and listening to Trump, you know, for him is uncomfortable. Um, I think it's important to, to consider that, um, you know, for, for white people in this country, maybe listening to Trump is uncomfortable. But, you know, the distinction between, um, you know, like it was said, between white people and people of color, the difference between being uncomfortable and the difference between, uh, you know, being terrified for your family and your friends and your and your, your safety. Well, I want to thank you, Stephanie, uh, for that comment. I know uh, Bilal Siku, who's the associate professor of political science at Hillier College at UHart, you brought that up in the past, heard this from some of your students as well. Right. And I think that's a sentiment that is going on around the country. I mean, I've just talked to so many people who have talked about especially children who have been crying about the outcome of this election. Um, you know, you know, when you teach your children not to be bullies, when you teach your children to be respectful of other people, regardless of their race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, and you have a candidate who does the exact opposite of that and is rewarded with the highest and most prestigious honor in our society, which is the president of the United States, I think it makes a, it gives all of us a reason to pause and to really think about what type of country we're in where, you know, this kind of an outcome could occur, um, especially, as I said, when a candidate is just so verbal about these kinds of feelings and they have been at the center of what that campaign has been about. Arthur's been holding from Windsor. Arthur, you're on the show. Hi, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good, look, I'm a Republican, and, and I am so tired of being called a racist by the left in this country. It has gotten me so so upset. It's just unbelievable to me that a man who says we have to secure our borders to keep out to keep out Mexican criminals is essentially what he said. He didn't say that everybody coming across the border was a criminal. He said we need to keep criminals out. We need to control immigration. Every country has to have a border. Look what happens to a country like Poland. No border. They've been overrun 100,000 times by Russians and Germans and Prussians and Hungarians. You have to have a border, and it's not racist to have one. As far as people who say, my kids are worried, I'm concerned about my children being deported, whose responsibility is it that someone brought their children here illegally? It's certainly not my responsibility that a parent brought their child here illegally. And if their child was born here, their child has the right to stay here. I mean, that's not racist. I'm a brown person myself. My last name's Machado. It's of Portuguese descent. But you know what? My parents came here illegally. They spoke Portuguese as their primary language, and they were welcome. And we need to turn people to understand. Like Mr. Sequa said, there's people who want to go back to the 1950s white look, and there's people who want multi-generational. I, I endorse multi-generational approach. But I don't like being called a racist because I think 
people should be acclimated and they should understand what our values are as America as a country. I mean, the Democratic Party, what, three months ago after Citizens United put up a, an attempt to amend the First Amendment to make up for the decision in Citizens versus United. Believe me, the last thing I want anybody to do is touch the First Amendment as a stance. So in my point of view, I don't like being called a racist. I'm not a racist. And that, my wife, who's a Democrat, voted for, well, she says, she, I don't know, voted for Mr. Trump because she thought they were characterizing him improperly. Mm -hmm. Well, Arthur, uh, I thank you for your comment. Um, let me, I want to ask you, do you think that our country is going to be able to unify after such a bruising uh, campaign season, the things that Donald Trump has said that have hurt a lot of people? I think, that, I think that we will be able to unify. I think just like with President Obama, I didn't run around after President Obama got elected and say he's not my president. He is my president. Everybody's going to work together. But a lot of people, There's going to be some yeah. bouncing in the beginning, there, especially when he gets rid of the ACA. I mean, the brouhaha over that, which will probably happen in March, is going to be, mm -hmm. like, monumental. But once we get kind of past that and the economy improves, I think things will look a little more normal. And in a couple, we'll be able to tell by the 2018 midterms. That's right. Thank you, Arthur, for your call and comment. Um, you know, he said that he didn't wa run around saying that uh, President Obama was not his president, but a lot of people did. This this division in this country did not right. just pop up overnight. Right. It has been around at least since 9-11. Right. If I remember, under George W. Bush, we right. remember the bumper stickers and people being very upset whether uh, George W. Bush was president. Right. Not only did a lot of people refuse to accept and acknowledge the presidency of Obama, in fact, the president-elect was one of the people who really led the campaign to discredit and undermine the president by arguing uh, for years that he was, in fact, not born in America. And so, um, you know, that, uh, you know, but I think the caller's, you know, reaction to, you know, the comments that have uh, been made on this show and, and the comments that are being made around the country about this election really, in fact, reflects the very deep divide that exists in our country um, you know, Eduardo Benilla Silva, a sociologist, talks about this issue of racism without racist, right, where people in the country, you know, uh, say racist things, think racist ways. They engage in racist activities, structural and at the individual level, but don't think of themselves as being racist. And so I'm sure Donald Trump doesn't think his comments at the very beginning of his campaign that he tried to sort of modify by talking about, well, I'm only going after the criminals, but he... He did a broad sweep of people who came across the border and described them as murderers and rapists and, 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 and thieves and other sort of things. And he didn't make those distinctions that the caller is now making today. We got a message from Cindy who writes, why doesn't Donald Trump address the nation and speak to those who are expressing fear and uncertainty? Wouldn't that go a long way to, re to uniting the country? Do you think he even knows people are afraid? I don't remember an election before that actually brought our younger generation to tears. That's not politics. That's humanity. I want to take another call. Jackie's calling from Oakdale. Jackie, you're on the show. Hi. Thanks for, for having me on the show. Um, so what a Trump presidency means to me is uncertainty. And I'm a registered independent. In the beginning with the primaries, I actually gave, you know, gave Donald Trump a chance. I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, he's top part of the establishment. Maybe he will bring change and, you know, a, a but after one thing, after another, he kept saying against women, finding out he's not paying taxes, you know, so many things. I went against him and voted for Hillary. And I'm just shocked that so many people voted for him 
but they're, they don't even want to claim him as their president because they think they'll be viewed as racist. But the things he said are racist and divisive, and it's just unacceptable. And I, I can relate to all the people that, you know, of color and, you know, immigrants and things like that that feel like what's going to happen next, you know? Well, I, I appreciate you giving us uh, your call, Jackie. I wanted to take another call. Uh, Kyle's been uh, holding from Rocky Hill. Kyle, you're on where we live. Hi, how you doing, ma'am? I'm doing well. Um, the problem I'm finding right now is I, I took both political campaigns, you know, both their platforms. I had my father print them out and hand them to me, and I chose the one that I felt was best, and it happened to be Trump. Do I agree with everything he said? No. The biggest problem I'm having now with people in general is that they're so divided now. Instead of just gearing up and getting ready and saying, okay, you know what? Trump is the president. We need to uh, we need to accept that. And now what we need to do is use our voices to dictate what he's going to do. No, instead they're tearing down their own cities and tearing down their areas and protesting this on a mass level because they're upset. And we've been taught in our society over the last few years that your amount of rage dictates how much we have to accept. And I believe that is just outrageous. I'm not saying everything that he said is great because it's not. And he has said a lot of things that he should apologize for and that should disgust people. However, we need to accept the fact that he's here now, he wasn't a part of the establishment, and maybe give him a chance before we start laying into him and be like, oh, there's no way he could possibly ever do good because no one thought Reagan would do good. And he was an actor, came in, and no one thought Reagan would do good, and he did some great things for this country. We need to just give him a chance. Well, thank you, Kyle, for your comment. I'll have uh, our political scientists respond below. Right. Very very thoughtful, you know, comments from Kyle, because I think, you know, this idea of how do we uh, recover as a nation after this election, I think, is something that we're going to be trying to sort through for months. But I think, you know, part of the problem today for a lot of people is just the nature of this campaign season. I mean, it was a very long one. It was one in which uh, the vitriol between the candidates was fairly intense, um, you know, what's amazing about this moment is that, you know, people not only disagree, but they also uh, disagree vehemently about the policies, but they even object to the people who are speaking those sort of uh, ideas and policies. And so, you know, it's not just that we're clashing on the idea, of, you know, of whether the Affordable Care Act should be kept or not. We're also clashing on the idea of whether you're a good person or an evil person based on what you believe about the Affordable Care Act. And I think that's a part of the difficulty. And this campaign just didn't help. It was very negative, more negative than any presidential campaign that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And there were things said by both of the candidates about each other. One candidate a, a bit worse, I think, you know, the nasty woman comment and some other things really shocked a lot of people to hear that at a presidential debate occur. And some of the other things on the stump, the things you heard from the crowds who were, you know, at the rallies, uh, lock her up and some of the T-shirts that people were wearing and, and other sort of things. This was just a nasty campaign. And so I'm not shocked by the fact that so many people are not able, you know, a couple of days after the campaign to sort of dust it off and act as if nothing happened. I'm going to take one more call. Uh, Tammy, you're holding from Cheshire. We just have a couple of minutes. What's your comment or question? Hi. Um, one comment is um, I think you're doing an amazing job with the show. Keep it up. Thank you. Love listening to you. Uh, Good producers. Things. I just want, <laughs> wanted to just comment on a few things I heard. One is um, I love the comment of the racist being without, without being a racist. It's just for us to think about that that's out there in our culture and all races, you know, are doing that. Rap music, comments, tweets, 
I uh, just wanted to put that out there. And the other one is I'm 100% for limited elections like the rest of the world. Two years is a long, long time. Familiarity breeds contempt. Absolutely. Now to, my, <laughs> now to my comment and question for you guys. I wanted to pivot this over to what's going on in Connecticut because I think both the Republican establishment and the Democratic establishment are 100% tone deaf mm. to what's going on in this country and what's going on in the state. Things are not good. Most people are contingent workers. Mm-hmm. People who came back to work are coming back making less money. That cuts across all genders, all races. And I find that even in Connecticut, our local politicians are completely tone deaf to things aren't okay. And this is, I think, what Donald Trump represented. I mean, by all, by all accounts, the man's an independent. He really is. What he's been a Democrat, I mean, a Republican for a year. <laughs> so. I wanted to ask your thoughts on how does this tie to Connecticut? I mean, we're a land of steady habits, and the Senate is now tied. Mm-hmm. That's huge for us, huge, our, local, yeah, our state yeah. Senate. And there's, things are not good in our state. And, and the Trump vote, I would hope that our local officials take this as some type of wake-up call mm-hmm. to say, you know what, stop listening to yourselves, get out of your echo chamber, our taxes are up, our wages are stagnant or going down. We're hurting. Yep, Tammy, we, we're almost out of time, but uh, we get your point. This sounds like uh, people who have been asking for the it's time for the political revolution. Yeah, a- absolutely. I think you probably need to do another show on that, <laughs> that whole issue itself. You know, without a doubt, you know, the Trump and, and, and Sanders campaigns, this election cycle and what they brought out about some of the sort of social, political and economic, you know, problems and challenges we face as a nation – have really put them, I think, on the radar of most politicians. And if they continue to be tone deaf to those issues, they really do that to the detriment of their political careers. Uh, Today, I had mentioned earlier, uh, maybe even be happening right now, President-elect Donald Trump is at the White House with President Barack Obama for the transition. Talk about the symbolism of this moment. One minute. Is there a place I'd love to be a fly on the wall to see what that conversation is like between these two folks who I'm pretty sure don't like each other, but... um, you know, the decorum of, you know, this transition of power is something that's very important in the in the political world, very important to democratic um, politics. And, you know, just as George W. Bush did a great handoff, polite handoff to President Obama, I think President Obama has the class and the character to do a similar thing. So a lot we're going to talk about before Inauguration Day. I want to thank Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Always a pleasure to have you in studio Thanks with us. Again, next week, Where We Live is going to be looking a little closer at some of the, the big issues at hand, immigration, health care, the economy, and what happens with climate change. We hope you'll stay with us. Thanks so much to producers Lydia Brown, Jeff Tyson, Kion Wolf, and executive producer Katie Tolarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.